the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Michael Anton, who is a professor at Hillsdale College and a former member of the National Security Council under President George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And I'm delighted that he is here in London because, uh, Michael, you've been talking at the National Conservatism Conference about Britain. This is called the Americano podcast, but your speech was about Britain's grand strategy. But you were applying it to America, were you not? And you think that if I I can try and summarise it and then you can say I've got it wrong. But you were suggesting that America ought to learn from Britain's grand strategy, as described by Winston Churchill in the centuries leading up to the 20th century. Yeah, so it was a couple things. One was I quoted a, a passage from Churchill from a speech that he gave in 36 that he reprinted in the first volume of his six-volume History of the Second World War, which is as much a history of the war as a personal memoir of being the leader of the, not leader of the opposition, but in a way the kind of de facto leader of the opposition to appeasement in the 30s while he was in the wilderness and then obviously prime minister. I'll just say as an aside that I know how cliched it is, that is to say for Americans to come and quote Winston Churchill, and I, I expect Brits get incredibly tired of that because you've been having people do it to you for now 75 years. And uh, I acknowledge that in my remarks, but I am I schooled, educated at the Claremont Graduate School under, you know, students of Harry Jaffa and Larry Arne. And now Larry Arne is the president of the college I work for. And Larry Arne spent six years in England by Martin Gilbert's side doing work on research on the official biography of Winston Churchill. Mm. You cannot get to know and study with and learn from these people without knowing a lot about Churchill. It's just inevitable that it will rub off on you. So I've read it all. And I remembered this passage in that book where he quotes this speech and he says, the policy, basically the, he calls it the policy. He doesn't say strategy, but it kind of is, it is, had remained consistent for 400 years. And that always stuck with me. I read it probably, you know, I was in college when I first read it. It stuck with me as remarkable, and it's a, the best definition of grand strategy that I've ever heard. You know, nobody really knows. There are books about grand strategy. It's hard to define strategy, much less grand strategy. So what is it? So I adopted my own definition, which is it's consistent policy by a country over centuries, even as circumstances change, governments come and go, sometimes even regime changes, changes of monarch, you name it. But the policy remains the same, and I found that very insightful. And once you think about foreign policy or the policy of other countries through that lens, everything kind of snaps into place and starts to make sense. Yes. And you talked a little bit about, well, we'll get onto this, about how sort of internal politics and external politics. But when it comes to America's grand strategy, I think a lot of people, particularly American conservatives and, and Americans on the left too, have been very unhappy with America's foreign policy. And a lot of the world has been quite unhappy with America's foreign policy. Because would you say it has not been in keeping with a grand strategy? Yes. Well, okay, on the latter, I mean, 
I sort of already knew this, but it really hit home for me. I was here in the UK about, I guess, six years ago for a conference. I was in government, you know, just for any ethical watchdogs who want to see if they can trip me up over this. I did go through the formal process of getting my participation in this conference approved (laughs) by the relevant ethics lawyers, so I have no problem there. Anyway, I came, and the host of the conference... After it was over, you know, I was waiting for my car to take me to the airport or whatever, and I, I just asked him, you, you know, about I thought this is what I think probably the Iraq War did to Blair's reputation and to the relationship with the United States, and he confirmed, you know, all my worst fears that it was just tremendously unpopular with the British public. It put, you know, tremendous strain on the U.S.-U.K. relationship, and so when you say people, you know, don't like America for, I think that's one of the ways that it started mm. was back then. And it it has continued now for different reasons. So, for instance, I was just in Hungary about a week ago, two weeks ago, and the Hungarians don't like American foreign policy, but for different reasons. And I I got some of this from the conference attendees who came up to talk to me afterward, said, you know, your country goes around just badgering everybody, right? It hectors us. It tells us you have to live a certain way. It pushes these very liberal social policies, leftist social policies in conservative religious societies that don't want them. Like, why do you do that? And I, you know, I didn't take it personally. I just said, I, I, we, it's institutional capture, essentially. The same kind of far-left, woke forces that long ago took over the university. It took them a little longer, but they eventually took over the State Department, USAID, mm. the intelligence services, the NGOs that work in, in concert with for, formal government agencies. And yes, they do push this kind of things, and it does irritate other countries. Yes. In terms of, though... I don't want to filibuster here, but the one thing that's interesting or or harder to nail down is kind of implicit. uh, Well, not implicit. It was explicitly brought up at my talk today. I talked about Ukraine and the other two speakers did, but the differences between us were not really brought out too thoroughly. But it seems clear that right now, you know, official British policy, certainly 10 Downing Street and the White House are yoked. They are together in believing that the, the West, NATO, Britain, the United States in particular, ought to be aiding Ukraine against Russia. And the two people on my panel, one of whom is a former head of MI6, so obviously extremely powerful, influential man, right, forcefully defended that position. So whatever divergence there may have been, you know, actually, I, I guess it's, it's closer to the truth to say that the elites, you know, the leadership in the United States and the United Kingdom were aligned on Iraq in 2003, but there was a huge disconnect where the American public favored, at least initially, the Iraq invasion by about 80%. The British public never favored it mm. by a majority. I, and I don't know where, honestly, where British public opinion is right now with regard to aid to Ukraine, but it does seem that there's a kind of unanimity among the political class in Britain that mirrors the unanimity among the American political class that this is the right thing for us to be doing. I certainly think I think polling would suggest there's very strong yeah. support for Britain's policy, but there is certainly no room for dissent. Yeah, and uh, you have to be very careful what you say in some places about what's going on in Ukraine and our role in it and so on. And in fact, there was an interesting on that note. There was an interesting thing yesterday where Jacob Rees Mogg was talking about how because of Brexit, it was because of Brexit that Britain was able to stand up to Putin on Ukraine. I, I what, how do you what, was re- the, what was the argument? Why would that... Ne- the argument is- there is that we were not bound by European defence commitments or defence sort of nervousness and, or Germany's nervousness about criticising. We weren't restrained by that. I'm not sure that argument adds yeah, up. But it's, I, it's- I, I'm not sure either because there are countries you know, that are still in the EU that are very vocal and and even active to to the degree that they can be active. Obviously, you know, a a smaller power with a smaller GDP and a smaller population base can't do as much as a larger power like Britain with a 
much larger economy and mm. military and so on. But yeah, I don't I don't see the connection there. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's go back to the, the um, Churchill. And you mentioned there the, the cliche of opening with Churchill, but it was a very different quote to what you normally hear. And I've noticed this a lot. There's the cult of Churchill in talk about the special relationship. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know about the bust of Churchill in the Oval Office and the weird... Oh, I was there for all of that. You were all there yeah, for yeah, all of that. Yeah. yeah. But then yeah. it became this sort of British tabloid story of, you know, what first thing we say about any president is what's he done with this yeah, bust yeah. of Churchill. I'm not sure people really care. I think it's just a bit of a sort of transatlantic news fetish. Really. Yeah. yeah. And I wondered, so do you think that Churchill is... You know what I should say? I wasn't there for that. I've yeah. got to clarify that because that was, uh, I was there when President Trump was accused of having moved either a bust or a portrait of Martin Luther King when he in fact had not removed it. And it was just a reporter in the Oval Office who didn't notice it. Yeah. And it made a huge scandal for a couple of days. You know, Trump is a bad man because he did this thing that he didn't even do. So, yes. I, But I certainly remember the reporting about the Churchill bust. Even yes, though, I think even it was though, that he'd replaced right. Luther King with Churchill. Uh, that was the I thought story. No, I thought it was an accusation. It was, it's not true, yeah, yeah but that was yeah, the story. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. But I wonder, so do you think that um, the talk of the special relationship, particularly coming out of Iraq and so on, has just sustained something that isn't really real. Well, you know, I, I, I'm also reminded of that amusing, I, I assume it's true, it was reported that, you know, in... President Obama met the Queen. His gift was a book of his own speeches, which seemed odd <laughs> to say the least. I'm sure she diligently read them all. Uh, I forgot. What, now I forgot the question. No, I was just asking about the special relationship. Whether whether oh, it sort of well, helped. you know, Sir Richard Dearlove in particular made this point, which I think is perfectly true. Because someone in the Q and A, a person asked. The Biden administration isn't treating Britain particularly well. Like it criticizes, and he had a long litany of insults and, and so on. And said, you know, how can we get that to stop? And what Richard Dearlove said is, which I think is quite correct, is, look, you can't take the sound and fury maybe at the highest levels, some bickering between the president and Downing Street or criticism, right, as indicative of the whole relationship. Because at the working levels, no matter what's going on, no matter what squabbling there may be going on at the high levels that you see in the headlines, Mm. at the working levels, it's really very good. And it remains very good regardless of administration either here or there. I know from experience that that's true. There's a danger in that, though, which is to say the upside is obviously consistency. Policy just doesn't radically change and lurch back and forth in one direction or another, depending on elections and, and so on. The danger in that, though, is that elections don't have the consequences that you would want them to have, right? If civil servants can just run the government in the way that they want, regardless of what the people have indicated they want, you don't really have democracy. I mean, we saw that in a way with Brexit, right? It took three years to do it. Yes. And you and I were talking about our mutual friend, Chris Caldwell. Well, he had a long essay in the Claremont Review of Books called Why Hasn't Brexit Happened? Now, eventually it did happen, but it was the explanation that you'd come to expect, right? It's a a kind of cabal of elites in the civil service, former members of parliament who are super influential still in the government and the media, foundations, NGOs, all kind of working in concert to tie up the process as much as possible to delay it and hopefully derail it. Mm. On a whole host of issues, the civil service in both the United States and Britain, I think, operates that way. And in a way, it is, you know, it's just anti-democratic. I don't know a nicer way to put it. I mean, when the voters say, I want to do X, and the elites say, however quietly, 
nah, I'm not going to let you. That's not democracy. Well, and as people have been saying at the NatCon conference this week, I mean, Brexit has failed to lodge it. It's happened, but it hasn't happened. You know, yeah. it's, it's because the Whitehall and so on, the civil service don't seem to be willing to do it. And you can call it a blob, you can call it a deep state, yeah. whatever it is, but it just doesn't seem to happen. And something similar, I think you'll have great insight on this, is, is what happened with Donald Trump in Washington. Yeah. I mean, it's that electorates vote for some change and then the grand strategy doesn't change. The, the domestic grand strategy yeah. doesn't change. Well, there was uh, against Trump during his administration, there were people who called them inside the administration who called themselves the resistance. Mm. Right. You know, there is a sort of noble resistance to foreign occupation that I think. But you to use that word to describe just basic insubordination and skullduggery against an elected president for whom you are supposed to work and be accountable is to take a noble process, a noble concept, and a noble, actual noble historical examples and really to pervert it out of any sense of what it ought to be. So yeah, Trump faced that dramatically throughout the course of his administration, and he found it very difficult to get a handle on the bureaucracy. Now, any president will. So first of all, the bureaucracy is hard for any president to control. Second of all, the bureaucracy is harder for a Republican to control than a Democrat to control because the Republican is much more likely to give it orders that it doesn't want to follow. And third of all, it was especially hard for Donald Trump because Donald Trump was the ultimate outsider running against not just the Democratic consensus as, say, you know, a President Romney would have done, but running against the Republican consensus as well. Mm. So it just made it extremely difficult. He didn't have a bench of people to, you know, the typical way— American administrations work when there's a change in party, a new president comes in, then all the people who are in the last Republican administration, you know, anybody who wants to and who's welcome comes back. There'll be some new people, but there's going to be a lot of the old timers or just, you know, people who were there before, formers are going to come back, usually with a bump in mm. rank. So if you were an assistant secretary, let's say in the Bush administration, and then a Republican wins in 2016, you expect to be back as an undersecretary yes. if the president wants you. The problem is most of those people, the vast majority of them, were against Trump. They didn't support him in the primary. And many of them even, I don't know how well this is known in the UK, but there were these famous letters that some people organized, Elliot Cohen, among others, organized, where they got people to sign a letter saying, under no circumstances will I work in the Trump administration. So you had these letters with 150 names, all of whom were very well credentialed to be in the State Department, the Defense Department, the intelligence community, you know, all of these apparatuses of the United States government that deal with foreign affairs. And they had taken themselves out of the running in a rather kind of spectacular, you know, Cortez burning his ship sort of way that it's hard to come back from. And so where do you find people now? There wasn't yet, and it's still only nascent, a kind of growing Trumpian cadre to staff an administration like that. Hmm. Is part of the problem, look at Brexit and Trump, is that they, obviously there's the, the resistance, and the, yeah. the kind of unwillingness of the administrative state to take on the changes. But is part of the problem that actually the populists, for want of a better word, don't really want to fix the problems, because fixing the problems is extremely hard. I wouldn't say that they don't want to. I'd be more generous, which is still not super flattering. It's to say they don't know how. <laughs> or, you know, in a way, it's it's easier to come up with a solution. The hard part is to come up with a, a means of implementing the solution, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I know, I can tell you right now, how do you solve America's border crisis? Well, first of all, you'd have a wall. Second of all, you'd have a, a border patrol that is fully resourced to defending the border and has the political backing of an administration that will not 
abandon them or undercut them, but that will support them when they do what they're supposed to do. When you have and you know what's called ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Officers, who are empowered to track down people who are in the country illegally, working in the country illegally, detain them, investigate, deport when and where necessary. And so when you have all of that, right? Mm. So in, in that sense, it's sort of easy to solve. But then if you say, okay, now go do that, implement it. How do you implement it? How do you get a wall built in the face of congressional opposition, bureaucratic opposition, and so on and so forth? How do you get all of this stuff done, right? I study and I teach political philosophy. And one of the great themes of political philosophy is the best regime. What is the best regime, right? It's much easier in a way to outline what the best regime should be than to implement it. I can sit down and tell you that the perfect government would look like X. And you might even agree. And then you say, how are you going to do that? And I say, I don't know. So I'm about to teach a class on Plato's Republic this weekend, right? The most famous philosophic book of all time. And it's the same basic issue. They come up with the best regime. And then the question of how are we going to get this done in real life? And then the trouble really starts. Yes. Is it partly, though, that people always accuse Trump and people who supported Brexit of indulging in the politics of grievance? Yeah. And that... There is a certain comfortable grievance mode. I suppose. Uh, but look, there are real grievances in America right now. And yeah. I assume in Britain too. But middle class wages had been steady or declining in real terms since the 1970s, since even the 1970. Right. So, uh, yes, the number on your paycheck goes up, but its purchasing power is flat or even declines a little bit. Healthcare costs have been shooting up. Outsourcing decline in manufacturing has gutted former industrial areas of jobs and led to all kinds of pathologies from despair, higher alcoholism. For the first time in American history, researchers found that life expectancy for certain demographic cohorts had actually declined. Mm. You know, so there's, you know, the ridiculous cost of housing. I heard one of the speakers here, uh, I think it was yesterday, actually, it was an MP, said, you know, one of the things we need to get a handle on in Britain is, you know, housing is now on average costing about half of income. And that's crazily too high. We got to get that down. Mm. So these are all real grievances. So I think it's just too pat or too dismissive to say, oh, this is grievance politics. Well, what if people have real grievances? Then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say you're a bad person for complaining. Well, I would say your job as a politician is to address the grievances and make it better, right? Reduce the cost of housing, or at least relative to income. Make sure that incomes are not flat for half the century. Make sure that there are abundant jobs uh, in the country that, you know, you don't envision some ridiculous and impossible to uh, implement society where everybody's a banker or a tech exec and there are no middle-class jobs for the non-college educated left anymore. I mean, that's just not, that's not a real country, but that's what a lot of American elites seem to want, right? They just want the whole country to be kind of Manhattan or Silicon Valley and the rest of it. Well, you know, whatever happens there, who cares? You talked about wages and I suppose in America now, you do the labor market is quite tight. It's quite tight here too. Yeah, it compared is, to it what is, it has it been. It's fairly tight, and of course, the business community is always agitating against that because it doesn't want to pay higher wages. It doesn't want to pay this higher is, wages. The wages are creeping up. Yeah, and you have an inflationary problem, the cost of living crisis, and so is the problem that actually the things that need to happen are going to cause so much pain as well as being necessary that there isn't the democratic will to do them or not to do them. Uh, yeah, probably that has certainly been true of. And I don't know what the budgetary situation, although I think, again, a speaker yesterday said something that Britain had something like $2 trillion in unfunded mandates. So uh, one of the things that I have noted since I've been here in listening to the speakers at the conference and just talking to people on the margins is how unfortunately uh, aligned your problems and our problems are. Anytime I hear some particular thing, uh, somebody mentions, a British speaker says something about some 
intractable thing in Britain. I think to myself, oh yeah, we have that too, <laughs> so, which is not great for either of us. But you know, there's a classic example of the lack of political will, right? So everybody knows the United States has these gigantic unfunded mandates through various entitlement programs where it's promised X amount of money to Y amount of people. You look at the actual ledgers of the U.S. Treasury and it's, it's not there, yeah. right? And it's something's going to have to be done. We've known this for decades. But anybody who tries to take it on, who actually tries to do something about it, is destroyed politically, which means basically they don't. Mm. So this is one of the knocks on Trump, right? From, I think, some people who are being cynical, but some who are well-meaning. They would say, Trump has pledged he will not touch Social Security or Medicare. These are the two biggest American programs that have the biggest fiscal problems, right? But they're extremely popular with the middle class, the working class, and with Trump's base. Mm. And so... He says, I won't touch them. And he would certainly lose their votes and their popularity if he said, I'm going to reform these things, because reform usually means I'm going to cut them. I'm going to raise the eligibility age. I'm going to cut benefits or some combination of the two, right? And there's no political will to solve it. And so people who want to criticize Trump say, he's being cynical when he says, I will not cut these programs when everybody knows something has to be done about them, okay? But my argument or counter, or at least it's a question is, okay, if the height of political courage is to say, I am going to cut Social Security and Medicare, but the result of your political courage is you lose <laughs> and you don't get to implement your program, like what possible good have you done? Yes. I mean, Trump's attacking Ron DeSantis on Social Security, and which plays well in... Honestly, somewhat in disingenuously, but that's a classic. Look, attacking, accusing, a, I don't know how old it is, but it goes back at least to my own political awakening in the early 1980s. Ronald Reagan was attacked over, he's going to cut Social Security. Yeah. Um, Various Senate races have turned on this issue. The, the last serious attempt to reform the program was George W. Bush made a proposal after his reelection in 2004 not to cut the benefits, but to allow people to opt out of a portion and invest the money themselves in some kind of 401k where the rate of growth would theoretically be faster if you look at the S&P 500 or various stock market indexes over a long enough period, right? Yes. And he was savaged for that. And he basically went on a national tour for about six months to try to get the American people to buy into his program and build congressional support and it didn't go anywhere and the thing just died without a vote. I mean, it just never went anywhere. He yes. moved on. So that's one of those things I think that it's unfortunate, but the likely answer is that eventually there will be some kind of solvency crisis and when the solvent, a real solvency crisis with teeth, right? That is to say, not like now where you can abstractly know that there's a problem, but nobody feels it personally. Mm. All they know, if you're elderly, if Social Security is your main or a vital source of your income, you don't want it to go away. If you rely on Medicare for hospital bills and doctor visits, you don't want it to go away. So there isn't going to be the political will to solve it until, unfortunately, some kind of crisis. And we're just not, I mean, who knows when the crisis will come, but we're not there now. Yes, it might be coming quite fast. Go back to Donald Trump and 2024 now. He's talking about, uh, I will be your, your retribution, mm -hmm. possibly even more harder rhetoric. In fact, definitely harder rhetoric than he had on 2016 against the deep state. Yeah. Let's say he wins. Do you think he will be able to do the things that he failed to do in 2016 to um, uh, I, change the probably, way Washington works? Probably partially. He'll be able to do more than he did. It, the wild card is he's learned lessons, no doubt. He has a better grasp of who he can trust, who he can't trust. He has a better grasp of who he ought to appoint and who he ought not to appoint. And he has a better grasp of what the media, the permanent bureaucracy, the I mean, basically the, every power center in the country, what they will throw at him. Mm. So that's on the plus side of the ledger. The negative side of the ledger is the 
energy behind opposition to Trump will be even more intense than it was the last time. So which of those two, you know, whether the immovable object or the irresistible force will prove stronger? I don't know. Right. But those will be the two dynamics that are working. Like he'll he'll understand things better and he'll be he'll want to be more active. But then they're also going to their opposition is going to be stronger. And on Joe Biden's foreign policy, do you think that actually he's been a continuation of Trump in some ways? In some ways. So, for instance, Biden's China policy is Trumpy when you compare it to what, let's say, the Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Obama foreign policy was. On the other hand, Trump was much less interested in any kind of military confrontation with China or military competition with China than he was in redressing the giant economic imbalances in the U.S.-China relationship. And Biden seems to be much more concerned with the military side, the security side. And there's a security element, too, in terms of Chinese espionage in the United States. But let's just say that Trump was much more focused domestically on what China's activities, economic espionage and others were doing to the continental United— not the continental, I mean, Alaska and Hawaii, too, of course. But rather than Biden— who seems to be much more concerned with what China might be doing in the Taiwan. Pacific yeah. and so on. And that's, you know, and that's a military issue. Well, chips, I mean, the Biden administration has been quite active in trying to control the global chip. Another way you could say that the Biden administration, in a way, fulfilled the Trump foreign policy is the Afghanistan withdrawal. Yes. Which is something Trump wanted to do and didn't do. And I think the reason he didn't do it is that he was consistently persuaded by people in his administration that... First of all, they would they would tell him that it'll it'll lead to a disaster. And I don't think he ever bought that argument that it necessarily would. But if you're the president who has to give the order, you have to have it's just natural. You're going to have some doubt. Well, I don't what will follow on. Mm. Taliban could take over. They could become a terrorist base again. It could launch attacks from that terrorist base. And then the, the attack will be essentially traceable back to my decision. So it's a very difficult decision to make, even though in his heart he didn't want to be there anymore. He was tired of the expenditure, tired of the casualties. He would visit Walter Reed and see people in, with very terrible injuries, and it made him sad and angry both, and wanted to get out. And Biden gave the order in an unambiguous way. Now, the pullout itself, the way it was executed, was a total disaster. I have pretty much every confidence that had Trump given a similar order, pullout would not have been as disastrously handled. You never know. Yeah. But I think it's just certain inexplicable mistakes like closing Bagram Air Force Base before you would evacuate all U.S. personnel that are so elementary. You don't really need a PhD in international relations or to have gone to a service academy to learn about military logistics to know that that was dumb. I like to believe that wouldn't have happened. But had he gotten a second term, I'm pretty sure that the United States early in that term would have Yes. Pulled out of Afghanistan. So if you take away the botched element of the withdrawal, would yeah. you be prepared to say that it was brave of Biden to pull out of Afghanistan? In a way, it's brave. Yes, yeah. I, I, certainly. I mean, you have to stand up. I'm, I will bet you, having not been in the room for Biden, but having been in the room for Trump, that when he told his senior, his cabinet and the Joint Chiefs and everybody, that there was, if not universal, near universal opposition, mm. which required him to stand alone. It is hard. I've never been the president, obviously, but I've been in the room watching presidents. It's really hard when these people, these very impressive people sitting around the table, and they outnumber you. You're just one guy. You're the most important guy, but you're still just one. And they're all telling you this is a terrible idea. It can be difficult to stand up to them and say, go ahead anyway. And it was actually the first time that establishment media started to criticize Biden was about Afghanistan. That was the first real time you sense that, yeah. that Washington media was turning on him in a big way. 
Although it didn't last. No. You know, and, 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 you know, there was a... Although the polling did... I mean, if you look at his polling, I mean, that, when it really started to dip was from the withdrawal. I mean, the criticism didn't last. Like, the Washington yeah. media did it for a bit, and then they... And it's unfortunate to say that the Afghan withdrawal has kind of withdrawn or receded in public consciousness. I, unfortunate, because I think it was a disaster. It did get, what, 13 Marines killed, I think. Mm. It's the kind of blunder that a president should really pay a price for, and I'm not sure that he has. But and, uh, one way that the foreign policy is changed dramatically is the approach to the rest of the Middle East. So Trump was, the mildest way to put it, I guess, would be to say it was not particularly moralistic, right? He didn't have a problem having a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, Obama administration went all in on Arab Spring 2011 and really believed that this would lead to a new wave of democracies and and so on. And so when everything turned sour in Egypt and uh, after Mubarak, you get the Muslim Brotherhood, you get chaos, and you get al-Sisi sort of back to square one with just a different younger guy. Mm. Uh, The Obama administration didn't want to deal with him. And Trump had no problem hosting al-Sisi at the White House or having good relations with Egypt. He had great relations with the UAE, with pretty much every country in the region except for Qatar, for reasons having to do with Iran, Mm. right? But under the Trump administration, so you get the Abraham Accords, which were, I know everybody, people try to dismiss those uh, as insignificant. I think they were extremely significant. Mm. You don't have yet Saudi recognition of Israel, but there's all kinds of Saudi-Israeli cooperation it, just in the aerospace. I mean, you used to have, uh, Israeli planes used to have to like fly around Saudi Arabia when they were going. They don't have to do that anymore, at least in certain respects. Yeah. There's a lot of sub rosa cooperation that goes on. Probably at some point, this could be me just being a little too Pollyanna-ish, but I, I tend to believe that had Trump gotten a second term, there would have been recognition between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. And the Biden administration's relationship with Saudi Arabia is so bad mm. that they, they barely speak anymore. So you're not going to see that happen on Biden's watch or, or certainly with the Biden administration giving any credit. And even more troubling for us, for the United States and its influence in the region is how much China's presence and influence in the Middle East has dramatically risen in a very, very short time. Mm. And that's, I think you can pretty much lay that at the feet of policy failures of the Biden administration. That, that, that's not structural or strategic or anything. The turnaround from America standing in the Middle East under the Trump administration to the Biden administration is maybe the most rapid foreign policy decline I've ever seen yeah. in my lifetime. Publicly, at least, it looked as though Jared Kushner was in charge of a lot of that Middle East strategy. Yeah. Did you get a sense of how much he was? To what extent was he calling the shots on? Uh, he was. Uh, he, was he was certainly very influential. I mean, look, President Trump came in and said from the beginning, "I want to be the president who does a peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians," mm. and he essentially gave that to Jared, who had a lot of other things to do. And then Jared turned to a man who'd been in Trump's circle as a real estate lawyer for a long time named Jason Greenblatt, who's kind of a forgotten, I don't mean forgotten, I just mean his role should be better known because he was the guy who put in just time and time, just an immense amount of effort to learning everything about it, traveling, getting to know the players, working really hard on it. And then this is my interpretation. What I'm about to say is my, I just make, make it clear it's my interpretation. I have no particular inside knowledge that this is what happened, but it seems plausible to me. I do know what happened is that the United States, when it made the decision after it being federal law for 21 years or something to move the embassy mm. from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, we knew that Mahmoud Abbas would be angry about it. But I think the expectation was he'll be angry, he'll make noise, he'll complain. And then after a few months, we'll get back to negotiation. Yeah. But he, he didn't get over it. Yes. Okay. And it kind of just stopped everything in its tracks. But 
so much work had been done in cult because you're not going to get a peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the absence of better relations with all the neighboring states, right? Mm. And so much work had been done in the Gulf to improve relations with the Arab states and to get them on board with some outline of a deal that all of that capital was stored up. And even if you weren't going to get, as Trump said, the ultimate deal, right? You could use that capital to other purposes. And I think that capital was then redirected into the what became the Abraham Accords. Yes. I mean, is it sort of anti-Semitic to suggest that Kushner and the Trump administration outsourced Middle Eastern policy to Israel, effectively? Let Israel call the shots, and Israel knew what it was doing, and that's why it was effective. Well, but I mean, you know, one problem with that criticism is that the flip side criticism is Trump's too cozy with the Saudis, right? Trump is too cozy with MBZ, the emir of uh, Abu Dhabi, and now the president since Sheikh Khalifa died while I was there, by the way. Just interesting coincidence, I was in Dubai in May of uh, 2022, when Sheikh Khalifa died and MBZ formally took back over the country. He was constantly criticized for being too close to these guys, right? Mm. So to whom did he outsource Middle East policy? Was it the king of Saudi Arabia? Was it the uh, Amir of Abu Dhabi? Or was it the prime minister of Israel? I, it's just kind of, at the end of the day, kind of dumb. Yes. Well, let, let's go back to, to what you were talking about at the beginning. And a grand strategy as a sort of centuries-long way of supporting the national interest. Yeah. What that really amounts to is, is quite considerable soft power. With Britain it did, with America it has done to a certain extent, because after a while the American empire, the British empire, was able to generate quite strong soft power. Do you think American soft power has collapsed? Collapsed, maybe. Uh, well, no. Uh, it obviously hasn't, because when I go to Europe I see the extent of American influence, some of it dismaying. I mean, to be blunt, I'm, I'm here criticizing now my country in a foreign land, which is one of those things you're not supposed to do. But the, the people who hate me already hate me. And uh, I, I, I'm not at much risk of, of making things worse on that score. So some of it I lament. I, you know, when people come to me and they have said, like, you guys, you know, your country, they're, they're pushing stuff on us that we don't like. I sympathize with them. Yeah. I should define soft power. What do we mean by like, soft power? Just, yeah. Influence. You know, yeah. any, anything. You know, what's the term coined by... It was either Graham Allison or Joseph Nye, right? Was yeah. it Nye? I forgot. But it was a book that around, you know, around in the mid 2000s really called Soft, or maybe late 90s, I don't know, he called Soft Power as Distinguished from Hard Power, which yeah. I think he meant essentially everything other than military power or maybe everything other than, you know, sort of brute economic force. Mm. So influence, right? Cultural influence, just your reputation abroad that makes, well, you know, if American soft power is collapsing, I would think that Downing Street, Berlin, you know, uh, these would not be so yoked. Uh, Rome, mm. Macron is a bit ambivalent about Ukraine, but not an opponent of further Western involvement in the world. He just he seems to be a little bit ambivalent and a little bit more on a go slow, which definitely your prime minister is not. I mean, there was a surprise visit from Zelensky to Checkers yesterday. I saw in the news, right? They announced it like the morning of, right? So your government is, is all in. And, and if the United States soft power were collapsing, I don't think you'd see that alignment. No. Completely collapsing. Now, it's declined in a lot of places. There are other countries where the United States is much less popular. This came up on my panel today, right? A questioner asked, what about what China is doing in Africa uh, in particular, but also throughout Asia and to some extent even in Latin America? Well, China is only able to succeed in doing that because many of these developing countries, they don't think it's such a good deal to yoke their futures to the United States anymore. Right. And they may be wrong. It may be a terrible blunder on their part. And we may be completely blameless. However, just the fact that it's happening says that at a minimum, 
something has changed in the perception in these countries of our role and our utility and maybe of our goodwill. And I don't, as I said today, I don't think the American political class has done enough soul searching about what that might be. And, you know, that's human nature in a way. Like nobody wants to be told, hey, this might be your fault. You might have said or done something that people want to feel that, no, my intentions are good. Therefore, my actions are righteous and, you know, take your criticism and stuff it. But a little introspection sometimes is, is useful in these areas. And I don't think we've had enough of it yet. And do you think you used the word woke earlier? Do you think there's a sort of woke imperialism that's undermining America's ability to influence yeah, countries of all? Yeah, certainly. For some countries, but not for others. I don't think it hurts us here, right? No. Does it? It may hurt us. Right. It it hurts us a little bit in France. If you remember Macron's... um, Le wokeism. Yeah, well, but also his great statement when America was busy tearing down statues in the summer of 2020 and the French, you know, certain French people started to get in on the action. Macron went out and strongly said, we're not going to take down one statue or one picture or any monument in the history of our republic. It all stays. We're not, this is just, we're not tolerating that here, right? So he... He, I think, I think the French people and the French elite class understands the dangers of adopting every dumb fad that comes out of America a little better than perhaps some other countries do. Like Britain, uh, I mean, Britain. Right. We got into the pulling down of statues. Yeah. We, we, we were you know, I, yeah, they defaced the statue of Churchill right across the Westminster Palace. I went by it yesterday just to make sure it was still there, and it is, and to make sure that it had been cleaned up, and it had. So I was pleased to see that. So yeah, I think it is a problem for some and not for others. You know, I know it's a problem for the Hungarians because they told me. Yes. They said this is irritating to us. It's irritating to their political figures and it's irritating to the population, or not all of them, but much of the population. We know it's a big driver of the animosity between the United States and Russia. It's just such a hard thing, as you, I think you said earlier, I don't know if the tape was running, but you said something earlier like, it's difficult to talk about. Well, this is also difficult to talk about, right? Mm. If you even acknowledge in the slightest way that the United States might have done something, even inadvertently, even completely morally blameless, but that nonetheless irritated relations with Russia, you will immediately be jumped on as a traitor and a Putin stooge. Mm. And it's just a kind of a preposterous environment that we find. I mean, I don't care that much because there's not that much people can do to harm me. I don't want to like be Gary Hart in 1987. This is a really obscure reference, but Gary Hart was having an affair as he ran for president. And he said to the press, like, I dare you, follow me around. I dare you. And then they followed him and they caught him. Right. So I, I, I you're like, don't say that if you know you're having an affair. Yeah. Uh, that's just a long wind up of saying, like, I hesitate to say I'm uncancelable, but it's kind of hard to cancel me. And people have tried and they haven't succeeded yet. So that's why I can talk a little bit more freely. But it's annoying to be accused of all of these things when you're just trying to make logical points that you think are in your country's best interest, or at least it just ought to be heard. Yeah. Well, the Fox News host, Tucker, ex-Fox News host, yeah. Tucker Carlson, I mean, he raised questions about yeah. Ukraine and so on. He did. And he was called a, a Putin apologist. He was consistently show. called a Putin apologist. And, yeah. you know, we still don't really have any kind of official or full story as to why he was dismissed. I've seen many leaks, a lot of it plausible. At the end of the day, I said this to a couple of friends, and I think it's true. The surprise should not be that Tucker got fired. The surprise should be that he was allowed on the air for basically seven years in the most valuable piece of primetime cable real estate imaginable to just consistently take on the elite opinion on almost every subject Mm. over and over and over and over again. I mean, at the end of the day, look, I used to work for News Corp, so I, I know the Murdochs. I mean, I'm not like I don't know them in the sense that like we talk today. 
but I've met them. I've worked with them. And at the end of the day, you know, they're billionaires. They're globalist billionaires. That's what they are. They have, they literally have, I don't even mean that in a pejorative way. It's just descriptive. They have a global media empire. They have a company that operates in many countries. Therefore, Tucker Carlson's take on the issues is not ultimately in keeping with what their views are. Yes. The fact that they kept him around for that long is actually kind of amazing in a way. Yes, I suppose because he's very likable in the probably yeah, the murder. He's very likable. Yeah. And, and of course, also the show is doing great ratings, right? Yeah, so ratings. It's, it's hard to get rid of a TV host who's doing great ratings. I mean, Although advertisers were often pulling out and... and yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not clear to me exactly how much money that show ultimately made precisely because the left was good at pressuring advertisers not to advertise on it mm. so there were some I mean, you know what I, I don't know at the end of the day whether the rationale was i can tell you this though the numbers that fox has been putting this happened what like three weeks ago now has it been a month yet i don't know mm. the numbers fox has been putting up in the meantime are quite low not just for that hour but across the board it's really hurt them yeah. so that could be short-term pain or it could be indicative of something longer i just, just no way to know yet mm. do you think you will be called upon to serve in a second Trump administration if I have no idea yeah um, yeah I don't I don't know I you know but you would accept it if uh, I don't know did you <laughs> I, I don't, it depends you get older it's tiring and it's risky you know I've sort of managed to how does one put this um, I've managed to serve in government twice and not have anything particularly disastrous happen to me one can be you know uh, above reproach like Caesar's wife and still get embroiled in some dumb scandal that isn't your fault that at a minimum can cost you many tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees just to be exonerated or even if you're just a witness. I mean, I know people who got sucked into the Trump-Russia probe who were never even suspected of any crime, but it cost them enormous sums of money just to be a witness over and over again in front of mm. lawyers and congressional hearings and this and that. And I'm like, who needs it? So if somebody wants me... And the call comes and, you know, it's a job that I like and think I can do. You know, I, I, an easy thing to turn down would be somebody coming and saying, you want to do X? And I realize immediately, like, there's no way I can do that. I don't know how. I'm not interested in it. Like, I just wouldn't. You know, but if it, all of that aligned, I'd make the call on the spot then. Yeah. Mike Lentil, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in London. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. Mm-hmm.